empire of international crime, where a beautiful girl can mean a rendezvous with romance or a date with disaster. Oh. Ingrid! Ingrid, ich habe dir schon hundertmal gesagt, du sollst dich... Achtung! What do you want? You're standing on my hair. Oh. But is this hapless humorist as harmless as he seems? To the police, every avenue of approach leads to a dead end. Once they have a victim, they won't let go. I told you that. Yeah. Oh, then, then I was right. They are people. Fiends. Five of the most evil men the world has ever known. Bob Cummings. Uh, would you mind if I slipped out of this thing? No. Margaret Lee, Rupert Davis. The right key opens the door. The wrong key presents you with a passport to paradise. Welcome to a special sub-series of the East Green West Green podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we're going to be looking at select Western film portrayals in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic discovery is a podfather of Asian cinema, co-founder of the podcast on Fire Network, Mr. Kenny B. Hey, folks. How's it going? Uh, join us on the cinematic discovery of heaven's sake. This is cinematic discovery for me, uh, at least... 90% of the selections that Paul have 
picked for us have been new experiences for me. So uh, go do the same for heaven's sake. And you can in most cases. It's to, just to click away on your little services that you have out there at the tip of uh, your fingertips and what have you. So. Yes, indeed. So in developing the programming for this series, we looked at a range of films and have broken them down into a few subcategories. Um, so we're in the fifth episode of this series now, and this is the second of this sub-series that I like to call Hong Kong hijinks, right? Um, because we're looking at Hong Kong being used as a backdrop for some kind of wacky adventures. And so as with our la last entry, Up to His Ears, um, which was not really a Hollywood film, but a French production, we do a little bit of pond hopping this time, taking ourselves northward to Great Britain and uh, some British cinema. This is the production known as Five Golden Dragons. So this is a first time for you, right, Ken? It, it is. Uh, not even aware of it at all, which probably speaks a volume of me that I, I, I know way too much of... Uh, B and Z grade cinema, but uh, hey, uh, that's the magic of uh, being a movie fan that there's still things left to discover. And uh, uh, and to be anal about it, this is even a, a British German co-production, which might explain some of the um, casting at hand here. Yes, so, yes, uh, but, but it's not a German film, so uh, German language film. Yes, so it is a I guess 1967, uh, as Kenneth mentioned, British German. Production labeled as a comedy and action film set and filmed in, in Hong Kong. And uh, this is a film that before, again, doing the programming for this, this special series, I had not encountered before, um, which is surprising, too, given one of the members uh, of the cast who we'll get to talking about in just a little bit. And we're going to talk a little bit more in depth, too, about not only the story of the film, but also how this film is using Hong Kong itself, like some of the other films that we've seen thus far. Before I get too far into anything, though, let me do give the floor back to Mr. Kenny B to talk a little bit about himself and the kind of work that he does. Well, as uh, Paul uh, said, uh, I co-founded the podcast on Fire Network, and if we have any mission statement, is it, it is to provide... Asian cinema podcast coverage with an aura of context and fun, uh, mostly focused around Hong Kong because that's how it all started. Podcast on Fire was the leap off point, obviously connecting to uh, Ringo Lam's On Fire movies. I always like to tell this minor story. I voted for the name to be The Podcast Cometh because I'm such a silly billy that uh, everybody knows the Iceman Cometh, right? So if we name it something Cometh, they're going to flock to our podcast. What a dumbass idea so uh, podcast of fire it was but uh, it's uh, it's we never aim it uh, aim for it to be stuffy always inclusive as we talk of uh, themed shows so uh, with serious movies at the core of it or just uh, your regular Samo Hong and Jackie Chan action movies uh, we aim to provide as much uh, info and context as we can without it being uh, too dry or anything so we, we pride ourselves on that uh, because it, it is work after all uh, context always includes some research some of which i don't know so i get to learn and some of which i uh, i do know and uh, can share with uh, with the audience hopefully in a in an accurate way because uh, god knows there's uh, misinformation galore across uh, asian cinema where we're talking actual big Hong Kong movies or those uh, Godfrey Ho made Ninja Cut and Pace movies that that was always an aura of uh, missing there was always an aura of misinformation hovering around that and that's why we did that show the Golden Ninja podcast to 
try to set straight some of the misinfo surrounding that. Now, I'm I'm not an expert on that subject at all. Actually, we we lean on people who have written books and what have you. We will uh, will extend their info, credit them for the info, and then deliver it on our show, and then have have a good time hopefully in the process. So, it keeps me sane to be busy in this way and. Uh, I get to educate myself uh, both doing my own shows and also uh, doing this show. Because, um, as I said, I, I'd never even heard the name of this movie. Ne- never even a little 0.1%. Oh, yeah, that movie. I might see it one day. Not even. so. Uh, and there might be a reason for that. Or there might not be a reason <laughs> for that. I don't know. But uh, uh, we'll we'll get to the casting side, of course, and that that always means that people are going to look up this movie in some shape or form if they're a fan of some of the uh, surrounding cast, if not the main uh, cast. So there it is. But uh, we we are, regardless, uh, located on podcastonfire.com and all our social media links are available on there. So uh, if if, uh, you'd like to have some Hong Kong cinema coverage, for instance, delivered right to your ears, then um, give us a chance. All right. Excellent. Um, please do check them out, and you can check out all of our work, too, over at East Screen, West Screen Podcast. You can find us at Kongcast.com and all the relevant places on Twitter and Facebook as well. So before we get into talking a little bit about the story, um, we're kind of at uh, the halfway point for this particular series, um, Hollywood on Hong Kong. I tried to plot out about nine or ten films over the course of the year, and we've now passed that mark. Um, I had originally thought of doing uh, three films for each section, but I think the Hollywood high, the the Hong Kong hijinks section is going to just have these two films up to his ears and five golden dragons, because the third film I had in mind um, I'll mention at the end. Uh, I'm having a little bit of trouble digging up my copy, which is somewhere buried among boxes in storage, and um, it's not too readily available out there. Um, for uh, decent prices uh, to buy a second copy uh, for the show. So we might push that one to maybe a second season or later, and I'll talk a little bit about that um, towards hey, the end. Hey, would, uh, would knockoff count as Hong Kong hijinks? Uh, knockoff probably would. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah. I don't remember it was play- mainly set in Hong Kong. Obviously, it's the Choi Hak movie, Jean-Claude Van Damme, but, and a lot of Hong Kong actors, and I, I'm, I'm simply a fan of that. Uh, movie because uh, Choi Hak is uh, effing nuts and uh, that shows up in that movie. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we'll probably definitely come back. Well, you've talked about Knockoff, right? Haven't you on, or nope. on your show? Gonna, I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, well, well, uh, well, I bring it up, but uh, we haven't talked of it. Uh, always bringing up the fact that Cho- Choi Hak shot a disintegrating shoe from the inside of the shoe. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that, that made my heart sort of flutter mm-hmm. for Choi Hak and his nothingness. So, and, and Michael Wong is a badass in that movie. Right. Well, so as we kind of move out of this uh, current series, we're going to be moving into sort of the next series, which I'm going to call the Love Hong Kong style uh, mm-hmm. series. But so far, with the exception of one film, I think, The Chinese Box, most of this has been new for you. So yes. do, do you have a preference so far in terms of what you've seen, the more kind of historic, colonial, pseudo-history stuff that we saw in the first section or the Hong Kong hijinks sort of action spoofy comedy which one has appealed to you more of the stuff we've seen in all honesty they're both great sections uh, the Hong Kong hijinks is obviously it's low on 
context and drama and history because it's not designed like that but it's been new experiences for me and I can never look down on that but with colonial Hong Kong you get a little bit of you know you get a shot of history there uh, so um, and also extended sort of looks and experiences uh, with it in the case of the miniseries we talked of which gives you a little like oh I didn't know it sort of worked this way it started at one point in history this is what it developed into. So I, not that I'm a history buff, because I'm not, I'm very, very, very stupid. But I did enjoy the context that uh, colonial Hong Kong brought and how it concluded thematically with the Chinese box. So I'm, I'm not dictating that you got to treat the rest of the selections super seriously, because I treat this as pure cinematic discovery, and I'll uh, follow you wherever you go, Paul. But um for uh, if I return to any movies in the coverage, personally, it would be uh, those centered around colonial Hong Kong. And I would probably want to find and maybe therefore ask you, like, uh, are there more movies uh, that one can turn to just to watch, you know, that uh, covers more of the uh, what led from uh, formation to uh, the modern day or what have you. So I would be sort of interested in that. So that's what you've created, Paul. The monster in me wants more. <laughs> Give me more. <laughs> Feed me, Seymour, right? Uh, mm. All right, yes. So uh, that's good to know. And if you've got thoughts on how we've done so far, sections that have been your favorite or particular films that have been your favorite, please do you know drop us a line on any of the connection channels, social media, or otherwise, because we would be happy to hear from you. For now, let's get into our film for this particular episode with Five Golden Dragons. So our story, I guess, starting off is pretty simple. Uh, while vacationing in Hong Kong, American playboy Bob Mitchell, played by Bob Cummings, gets caught up in some intrigue with a mysterious crime syndicate known as the Five Golden Dragons. The criminal group has plans to sell off their organization's holdings to the mafia, who are moving in, for a sum of 50 million. But greed and mistrust begin to sow the seeds of discord among the secret members, and Bob Mitchell must find a way to extricate himself from their dealings before someone gets hurt. So this is a story coming from director Jerry Summers. Now, if you're not familiar with Jerry Summers, he's mostly known for ITC um, British television production work on shows such as The Saint, right? And that was a, a Roger Moore-led series that I knew about, but I never really watched. It was a little bit kind of before my time. I think my dad was really big in into The Saint and... Oh, as my, I my, my dad as well. You remember? Uh, I remember we had tons of uh, saint novels around the house mm. uh, because they they apparently wrote. Uh, it's either based on that, or that was a byproduct of the series. And the uh, and, and the symbol, the the stick figure symbol, was always sort so planted in me because it was on each and every book or mm. or, or and even TV show, of course. So uh, yeah, I remember. And if I understand the sort of the history correctly, the saint is kind of what led to Roger Moore's ultimately taking up the James Bond role. Yeah, um, they, they wanted him um, way earlier than uh, they eventually um, did. Uh, three or four years earlier, they, they wanted Roger for the role, and I believe Sean wanted to come back. Well, they he, Sean came back on, on the premise of uh, his salary. He wanted his salary to go to charity, essentially, so he came back for one movie, and then Roger wasn't available once more when George Lazenby did his one, so it they, they they had him in mind for five, six, seven years or something before mm -hmm. they got him for Live and Let Die. Yeah. So with that in mind, I guess if you go into this film and start to wonder at certain points, 
this kind of feels like a TV episode at some time, you know, in, in some of the segments, you might do well to remember back that the director here had much more experience directing for television than film. In terms of production, the film is produced by Harry Allen Towers, who also produced a film called Circus of Fear. Both of those films are tied to Edgar Wallace, um, the writer and author who's known for having written such things as the early draft of King Kong and lots of other work. And his name was tied to this because of a character called Commissioner Sanders, who's like sort of the British chief of the Royal Hong Kong Police Force in this film. That's a character from some Edgar Wallace short stories. And they took that character and planted him here in Hong Kong. My understanding is he's not regularly a Hong Kong police commissioner, but they used that as a point of sale to get more investors into the film by associating it with Edgar Wallace's name. So because of all of that, you now have, in terms of the availability, one of the available options for this film is a dual Blu-ray package that includes Circus of Fear and this film with Edgar Wallace's name in big bold letters across the top of the Blu-ray. So there's and, still and, and and no and not even uh, he, in this case he he becomes a greater selling point than Christopher Lee yes. or Klaus Kinski. Yeah, wow. which, is, which is interesting um, yeah. when when you think about you know the the careers the various careers of uh, some of the actors here. So, but yeah, that's kind of the the direct the direction and the production background uh, for this film. Now, the cast, as I said, includes uh, Bob Cummings as Bob Mitchell, a pretty well-known American actor who had just been all over the place. This was, I think, the last film that he actually worked on, and his, you know, he he did go on to live a number of years after this film, but did a lot of TV work and and things like that. Um, but his life was pretty rocky. We'll get into some of the uh, gossipy side of that a, a little bit later. But for me, the biggest surprise when watching this, um, because on my first watch, I wasn't really paying attention to the credits. Uh, <laughs> but Roy Chow shows up here as yes, the sort of captain directly under Commissioner Sanders, who gets a lot of screen time basically heading up the investigation uh, of what's going on. And not just screen time being subtitled speaking Cantonese, but full-on King's English for most of it, which is great. I mean, you seldom got a chance to see him do this kind of stuff if you're familiar with his, you know, many of his Hong Kong roles. Uh, and he looks young, and he looks fit and dapper and, you know, in his uh, Royal Hong Kong Police uniform. Uh, and it was a very pleasant surprise, especially coming off the last film when one of my little points of criticism was they didn't really bring anybody in from Hong Kong proper um, mm -hmm. in sort of a larger role. And so here we have that very thing. Uh, any thoughts on, on Roy Chow? Were, were you surprised to see him when he showed up? Well, clearly they, they, this movie didn't start out well for you if you started to snooze off during the credits, like la 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 la, fairy, fairy travels, fairy travels, la 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 la. <laughs> because I, I, I sat up immediately, well, okay. Well, I, we got one. We got one. I got one you can recognize and someone so likable as uh, Roy. And I, I also realized that Roy has impressed me via six or seven movies, only I've not seen many, which is kind of a crime, uh, you know, whether Western or 
or Asian productions uh, because he's got a massive credits list. And may, may, maybe I'm not thinking of a few movies, but I, I just realized I, I, I think I have a lot to explore more. I mean, there, there's signature stuff for Roy, obviously. A Touch of Zen earlier in the career. I, I rewatched that recently and, and uh, as late as um, Summer Snow, of course. Uh, so, and and uh, Temple of Doom, Bloodsport, and uh, things like that. So, but um, something within me says that um, I gotta explore more because uh, Roy has never let me down in any way, you know. Yes, indeed. Uh, going a bit further into some of the other cast, recognizable faces will include people like Klaus Kinski, as Gert, a kind of uh, smoking man, if you will, well, long before we had the smoking man in, uh, what was it, uh, the X-Files. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, as Ken mentioned, Christopher Lee here as the fourth dragon. Uh, Rupert Davies uh, as Commissioner Sanders, as I mentioned. You have um, a range of other British well-known actors and American actors like Brian Dunleavy, uh, Dan Duria and uh, George Raft as the dragons. They're, they're just known as the dragons, like first dragon, second dragon, because there are five golden dragons. Um, now, beyond that, and, and I do want to mention the ladies in just a moment, one of the things that is interesting about this film is if you watch the trailer before you watch the film, they're selling this premise on the celebrity of these older, or not, I mean, not super old, Christopher Lee's still quite young in this, but still well-known, right, from many of the mm-hmm. roles he's done to this point. They're selling them based on their celebrity. Like, you know, uh, here are four of the five golden dragons, and all the golden dragons are, a you know, a big ho- a big celebrity, a big celebrity name. Who's the fifth dragon, right? Um, yeah. did, did you did you watch the, uh, the trailer, Ken? No, I didn't, but that's um, just classic, actually clever marketing, because... Um, you you gotta make people wonder, you know. You gotta plant questions in audiences, uh, and uh, marketing back then is also way more interesting than marketing now. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Nowadays, marketing consists of the same editing techniques of um, big time movie trailers. Not as interesting, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm gonna watch that trailer because uh, regardless of what you think of the movie, that is a way in for audiences. You know, like uh, you could just put. Uh, you know, for a great movie that's looming that everybody looks forward to, you should just put like, "What is it?" Mm. <laughs> and people are, yeah, yeah. I, I gotta trailer, see it because trailer, I want a, to know what it is. It's a big question mark, you know. It's like exactly. you know, a big bold font, um, and, and that's indicative of the era. And it's it's fun, but I do have a point of criticism that we'll come back and talk about. I don't want to spoil too much for those who have not yet seen this film. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, a, a very solid cast. You have, um, Margaret Lee here as Magna and she sings two of the songs, um, including one called Five Golden Dragons, which is a great song. Um, I, I really enjoyed listening to it. And, uh, let's is see. she a singer or was that someone? She was, she was a, a, I think she went back and forth. She did singing and she did film. Um, and I don't think she... I don't know much about her, but I don't think she specialized only in one. There is an, an actual singer, too, who has a guest song that's just kind of thrown in um, at, at a club um, that uh, the Margaret Lee character is working at. And that is Japanese singer Yukari Ito, who is a, a quite well-known singer. She's got many, many albums out in Japan. She's still around today. 
I think she's 70 or 71 this year, and she has mostly done music, but she has appeared in a, one TV drama uh, a few years back in Japan and one movie, uh, something about a train. The full name escapes me. But mostly she was known Bullet for... Train? It's not that one? Not, not that one, no. Okay. Um, mostly she was known for uh, doing, you know, music and, and releasing CDs more than anything else. But yeah, yeah, they just, I guess, pulled her in as a, you know, Asian point of reference and something that I guess during this period, people in Hong Kong would be, have been familiar with some of her music. And I guess they wanted to add some flavor to it. I don't know. Maybe she was popular in the UK during this period as well. Um, but she it, sings it a song like in Japanese. A little bit so. of yeah, it seems like a little bit of a commercial decision uh, to uh, shoehorn in a little thing to to sell the movie on. Um, so yeah, so uh, beyond that we have, uh, let's see, Maria Ram as Ingrid and uh, Maria Perschi, if I'm saying that correctly, as Margaret. Uh, and these are a couple uh, characters who get also caught up in the intrigue with uh, Bob Mitchell, who is... Playing him, you know, the, the, the role he has is, I like to say it's a little bit somewhere between the kind of smooth and not slap, not the not the slapstick comedy of, of Jerry Lewis, um, but kind of some of the more smooth talking Jerry Lewis roles when he was a bit younger. And Dean Martin, somewhere somewhere in between there, he's, he's kind of riding that line um, with the kind of humor he's going for, but also trying to be... Uh, you know, this kind of eccentric playboy at times and getting caught up into this world of intrigue. But you're never really too sure, um, you know, exactly who he is in the film, which I thought, thought was kind of an interesting play on that as well. Uh, so, Ken, let me throw it over to you and give us your thoughts on Five Golden Dragons. Well, there's no real consequences of experiencing it, but there's no real co- consequences of not experiencing this movie. It's um, it's not particularly good, but you can attach to visual elements if you're a fan of Hong Kong cinema, of course. There's uh, uh, location spotting to be done, but uh, as, a, as an intriguing piece of light mystery that aims to build towards this crescendo, here come the dragons, it's... It's not particularly involving in that regard, but uh, along the way, there, there are the, the build-up and the techniques to to build it up. There, there, there are some things that made me stay interested, and and then I combine it with the fact that uh, I'm doing uh, the work for for Paul here, and uh, it's a new movie, so I, I'm I'm happy already to sit down in front of it, and I'm not I'm not uh, as well well um, versed in the era's stars either, and. Uh, I obviously need to read up on more and experiences experience more, but um, you know, to 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 be a movie fan and still, as I said before, be able to experience new things is uh, not a bad um, not a bad thing. And God knows I'd rather look back on uh, past eras and examine that uh, rather than only stick to to a present. Um, so so some movies are easy to sit down in front of, and this is a colorful movie set in the s- sunny, shiny. 60s uh, of Hong Kong and uh, I have found location spotting despite not knowing at all what I'm looking at you know what I mean because I, I love seeing you know Technicolor Cinemascope um, 
time capsules like like we get here in Hong Kong. I mean, uh, you you'll probably therefore have way more fun because you you've seen the modern equivalent of whatever ferry terminal they're at, and uh, and then have probably a lot fun a lot more fun doing the location spotting from having walked around Hong Kong. Uh, so is that something you you can like? Uh, is there an extra extra sort of layer of fun for you to like? Hey, been there, been there too. It, there that is, doesn't look the same anymore. Yeah, there is, the, and there isn't because a lot of the locations they end up highlighting here are gone. <laughs> they, hmm. they they no longer exist. So the ferry terminal, they yes, you do still have a couple ferry terminals in Hong Kong, but they've moved them. Uh, they're no longer in the same place, especially the the central ferry terminal. Um, which I used to love taking to and from work. Uh, they moved it a bit further down near the big sort of IFC mall tower area just because they wanted more people traffic there to that mall. Um, and it's kind of a bit of a hike to actually use. It's far less convenient than it once was. But that's just me kind of, you know, nitpicking on the decisions of the government. But uh, the Tiger Bomb Gardens and is another one we'll talk about in just a moment that's very prominent here. Sadly, um, in Hong Kong, no longer there, um, but they still have one in Singapore. And also one we've talked about already a couple times in a few of the things that we've covered for this series, the Jumbo Floating Restaurant. Mostly from the inside, though, no long, uh, long, long and longing shots of, of it at, uh, on the uh, outside. So yeah. it's almost like, I think, I think that's it. Yeah, I'm not too sure, but I think that's it. It's, it's an, loud in there, by the way. It's not a massage parlor this time. They actually, they actually, <laughs> they actually got it right this time. So, um, it, so it yes. sounds like the worst place to record sync sound, which is not, uh, which is spread here and there throughout the movie. And it's they record sync sound in a restaurant, and you can barely hear an effing thing. Thank God for the subtitles, Paul. Yes, because they, they they kept production audio, and it's like you and I doing a podcast in a crowded restaurant. And the mics are not in front of our mouths. Yeah. Like it's uh, nearly impossible to to hear in there. I actually considered doing that one time. I was like, you know, I think I'm going to start doing uh, some of the East Green West Green shows. I'm going to go to yeah, you know Yum Cha to have dim sum in in the morning, and I'll record some episodes. And then I realized it's way too noisy with all the teacups clinking and the people <laughs> chattering and the chopsticks hitting on you know various dishes and things. I was like, there's yeah. there's no way you'd be able to get the ambient noise down enough for it to be effective as kind of background but not be distracting from uh, what the hosts were saying unless they were like really hugging the mic which would look weird you know it's like what's that guy eating (laughs) but 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 the thing is also before i maybe hand it over to you is that uh, i i sat down and realized the movie is uh, fairly secure in its development towards uh, towards the reveal of the five dragons and the plot it doesn't dump all of it on us it drops little little hints there here and there sometimes it's dark mostly it's light i mean we get a a puppet death and an and an actual on-screen impact uh, of the puppet that's thrown off uh, a tall building and you even see uh, well well i think it's like brown or red sand that gets discharged from the puppet hitting the ground but you never saw that in movies normally it's and then off screen so he builds decent mystery and doesn't feel anxious to stick it all into 
one reel or, uh, or into five minutes when Mr. Exposition comes at us and uh, tells us the entire tale of uh, the movie. That is doesn't hold water all the way through because it's um, it's a movie that uh, takes its time ultimately. Uh, it spends uh, a little too much time at uh, during some sequences at one location, and then the ultimate reveal of things isn't that satisfactory. So, so, so it's also in a way a, a way too long movie for what it is, if I'm being honest. So that whole sort of like half a movie. I sat there, okay, got it. I understand the plot development. I like seeing Roy Chow. We all want to look like that. Got it. And uh, Hong Kong settings are cool. We're at Shaw Brothers now. I can totally recognize the Shaw Brothers set, <laughs> the street set at uh, one point. So it kept me going for half a movie, Paul, essentially. Then it sort of petered out in terms of the intrigue of it all. Yeah, it's got a running time of about 104 minutes. I think it pr- could probably trim itself down by a good 10 to 15 minutes yeah. to make it a little bit tighter. Um, the... Some of the editing in places, too, doesn't work very well. Perhaps it's, you know, inexperience from TV to film or because they were actually shooting on location in Hong Kong and at the Shaw Studios kind of outside of their normal UK filming element, I guess. Um, But you can, if you've got, you know, a somewhat critical eye, you can pick up on just little things. There's a scene at the pool when Bob Mitchell first, for example is introduced into the two sisters, um, Margaret and uh, Ingrid, and he's trying to chat them up, and he's got what looks to be a pretty expensive camera for the era uh, in his hand, and he's talking back and forth, and the shots back and forth, kind of headshots between the actress and the actor, and in one shot, he's got it in his right hand, and the other shot, he's holding it in his left hand, and it's very kind of glaring and obvious, Um, and so, you know, they weren't, keeping really up on the ball for movie level production when it came to some things like that. And you mentioned the really bad sound quality. Um, In in some sequences, I think they weren't prepared for filming in (laughs) Hong Kong, right? You know, as, as, as you've come to expect in a lot of Hong Kong cinema, where if you've got people on the street, you, you know, they're just not going to close down the street for you. Maybe you can book a restaurant, but you know, you've got to be prepared for a lot of the environmental stuff that's going on. Um, so there are moments like that that stick out, but still it didn't take away from the fun and enjoyment, especially the first time I watched this, yeah. uh, of having, you know, it, to to experience this as something new. Um, the we, we did mention some of the locations. So at a certain point, he does go to have a lunch with the ladies at the Jumbo Floating Restaurant, and they're actually inside the restaurant proper, as I mentioned, um, which was interesting because this was, again, I think, when before it had burned down and before they had kind of merged it into Jungo Kingdom, which I talked a little bit about that history last time. Um, they had the lower level of the restaurant, as I remember, was an outdoor kind of thing in that it was open you know it was you you had it's kind of underneath the second level but and they've got tables but there are no walls so you can kind of see out into the ocean and you've got all the all the harbor smells and everything that's going on in Aberdeen which I guess at this time was probably a bit better than it would be today but um, you know even so it's it's an interesting setting I think the last time I visited it they don't have an open section like that anymore I think that section is kind of reserved for housing fish and, you know, you can go and, like, pick 
the kind of stuff you want to eat. But again, they may have changed it even since then because um, this was years back. And now everything is, of course, interior and air conditioned for the guests' comfort. I think back in this mm. day, um, it certainly was not. So it was probably better to be kind of in an open section like that just to keep things a bit cooler. How do you think he works? Uh, uh, is it is the actor Bob Bob Cummings right and the mm-hmm. character Bob Mitchell? Because it's 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 a character that yo-yos between um, he seems eccentric, a little bit goofy and clownish, and then you might think, hmm, is that an act? And uh, that's designed to be that way, right? So um, you know, don't reveal the ending, of course. But how do you think that worked? That uh, us wondering what his deal is essentially i think it for me it worked pretty well by the end um because of the sort of back and forth making me wonder because sometimes i'm again it's like he's kind of being goofy you know jerry lewis style but then other times he kind of seemed like he was a bit more intelligent mm. about things and i for me i liked that i liked that it wasn't all just one way and it kind of kept me guessing towards the end but the problem with that is that by the end, I was still guessing. I still wasn't entirely sure. Um, yeah. They, they didn't really seem to to put a very strong cap on it one way or the other. Even Scooby-Doo did better and more coherent <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. endings, right? <laughs> Indeed. And for a lot of the humor that he was going for, yeah, I think it's very much a part of the period. It's almost like... Um, do you know if this was his persona at all in movies? Because I I don't know anything. No, about No, because the actor. he 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 did he did some work for Hitchcock. So I right. don't you know I don't think he was always trying for this offbeat humor, um, in every role he did. Um, but for me, I it it again sometimes feels like he was trying to adapt himself to the humor of the times that was made popular by other people. In kind of a way, and I don't want to say this unfairly that you know some people some actors like Dickie Chung for example, was known for kind of adopting a Stephen Chow-like comedy persona in some of the work yeah, he did. Look at, look at how well that turned out. You know, so, and, and, and again, that sounds very critical. He was doing what he thought people wanted, mm. and he's certainly got more talent beyond that. You know, he's, I think he's shown that in other stuff he's sure. done. So I think it might have been who, a case Who, who here. out of the... Um... Who out of them, uh, out of Dio and Dicky, uh, is big on the stand-up comic circuits? Uh, that's is that Dio. Dio, Wong or... Dio yeah, okay, he's okay. huge in, in, in terms of uh, stand-up comedy. He does lots and lots of shows. Right. And um, I think he's, I, I think Kevin was saying he's, you know, he's the biggest when it comes to just pure kind of straightforward stand-up comedy. Chung Tat Meng, he has a lot of one-man shows, but he does more like SNL type skits than just, you know, stand up your typical stand up with a mic and make people laugh kind of thing. Mm. Um, he does do some of that, but, but, you know, he's a bit more of a trained actor by trade. So he gets more into personas and things like that. And also, um, the actor who pops up now and then and stuff, uh, Jim Chim, um, he's very big into that, that as well. Um, but yeah, Deo, I think is the, is the premiere for, for if you look at traditional kind of stand-up comedy, um, that's kind of where he makes a lot of his appearances these days, which is a shame because I, I do like seeing him do movies, and I kind of wish he'd do some more. 
Satan Returns 2. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but, but uh, to go back on topic, I not knowing someone, an actor, that is always helpful. You can judge them fairly, hopefully. And uh, because I didn't know of the depiction of uh, him as a close to 60-year-old playboy how it, that was going to turn out that didn't thought it was creepy that it was sort of like hey hey what's up like he's this wisecracker and he's uh, you know he can talk his way into situations and out of situations and he has uh, zingers uh, when Roy Chow asks him have you ever seen this man before well I'll, well, I've never seen him dead before you know it's a dry that dry thing but I think ultimately it's sort of those various strands of uh, how much is actually him and how much is an act in terms of the character I, I think that largely worked it won me over fairly quickly and kept me going fairly well without it being this riveting part of the movie because he also clearly switches into a serious persona when there are lives on the line and he has to make a, a stand you know a serious stand and it's not the movie going into hugely dark territory or anything but all those sort of um quite a huge variety of um some acting techniques and character beats uh, worked worked very well and uh, he's even um his his dry and um delivery is even uh, it it creates the most memorable comedic moment for me and uh, it is when he's um, caught in his big ninja sleeping bag which is actually a portable dark room Mm. As he, uh, uh, as he, well, he says it is, but uh, he's he's attacked by one of the girls and uh, who's wondering why he's in that thing. And he says, "Well, I got a little red light in here, and I want to I want to develop develop my film." And he's essentially, you know, in a standing sleeping bag position kind of thing. I thought that was a clever visual reveal, and uh, the dialogue wasn't uh, about, you know, hey, hey, hey. Here's the punchline. It was more, yeah, it's a dark room. It's a dark room. It's fine. It's fine. It's a little bit rattled. So, as good as that was, it, it's the sort of the way the movie peters out and uh, doesn't pay off uh, matters uh, uh, is uh, is the problem. So, so he, he's putting in the best effort, I think, uh, in terms of all of this. Um, uh, but. Uh, I did get a little bit lost here and there. I even forgot largely what Klaus Kinski's role ultimately was about, who he was working for, if it was for the dragons or whatever. Mind you, I don't mind seeing Klaus Kinski on screen because Klaus Kinski is uh, this visual highlight by just being Klaus Kinski. You know, those dark eyes. And uh, here, he looks, here he looks more dashing rather than disheveled. But uh, there's an aura of danger around him, and uh, he's uh, he's a wild boy, as you know, offset and uh, off screen, and uh, quite a unique actor. And uh, I've um, I was uh, you know, if I see Roy Chow, well, of course, this is going to be good. I see Klaus Kinski as well. Well, here we go. There's going to be some watchable stretches here, and uh, I think uh, Klaus. Uh, bring some of that uh, but uh, I, I did have trouble ultimately figuring out who who he was in the whole scheme of things and uh, if it's a spoiler thing that don't answer it of course but uh, um but but, but as i said it, it peters out a little bit the movie uh, leading to sites and um location spotting and cost and decent enough light fun get you through it easily but um it doesn't uh, go from strength to, to strength is my is my point yeah 
Uh, we also do get some action sequences spread throughout. Um, you know, nothing major like you'd see in a modern, say, Bourne film or some such. Or even by Hong Kong standards, uh, things are, you know, fairly typical for what we've seen so far, such as in the last film you get um, some running across boats and some chase sequences and people falling down into the harbor. There's one gag which didn't really land for me, and I'd be curious to hear your thought on it, where, like, two of the two of the thugs, they're all dressed in black, they're chasing the characters, and one of the thugs is, like, climbing up on a ship, and the other thug behind him has his knife out, and he falls backward onto his buddy's knife and dies. <laughs> and... It it's actually funnier sounding when I say it like that than it was in the film, but I think it was supposed to be funny in that scene, kind of like a, a an almost like a Keystone cops or bad guys moment. Um, but it was it just kind of the way it was shot and the way it was kind of angled just came across as a little bit strange for me. For for some reason, I didn't register the moment. If I'm being truly honest, mm. uh, that's probably me not paying attention for for a few seconds there because um i i, I didn't register the moment Tr- truth is the movie goes down some dark routes that you don't expect necessarily a character dies mid-movie that you think is gonna stay front and center together with uh, bob mitchell and i have to say paul i was if, if you know which character i'm talking of i was i was convinced that was our second lead mm. but then the movie does a switcheroo on us and yeah. uh, i was sort of like I, I was engaged enough where i said to myself oh man i sort of like that character that was mm. a shame because they, they do treat it in a slightly dark way they find a body check a pulse so it's not like this character dies uh, accompanied by the clownish sound effects which happens later in the damn movie of course <laughs> uh, during the pagoda chase but whatever um so so i guess uh, the, the knife scene I don't know yeah, if they, they wanted some black, like some black comedy in there. Maybe they wanted to play with that too. But because the movie tries, it 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 seems to be a little bit disorganized to a degree. But uh, you know, uh, know enough enough to make it off. I don't know how mm. much of this was. Uh, uh, well-conceived ideas on a day that fell uh, beforehand that fell flat on a day or whatever. But yeah, yeah. So we get. A, a very familiar sequence by this point in our subseries, and for anybody who's watched significant Western portrayals or Western usages of Hong Kong, of you know, again the characters having a chase, but the chase are across various houseboats that are connected together through um, through Aberdeen Harbor. And at one point, it was interesting because I noticed that the actress um, Maria Percy, I believe. She's running with uh, Bob Cummings, and they're going across at one point, and she reaches over, and she has a little, like, hand purse that she's carrying. It actually goes into the water um, between the boats, and then she reaches down to pick it up, and I'm guessing that wasn't intentional. I'm guessing that was, like, Mm. just a moment that happened that wasn't planned, and that she just went with it and and reached down into the water. I'm like, no, don't touch the water. But again, I'm thinking (laughs) of today's Harper water rather than the 1960s. I get a tetanus shot right now. Yeah. Um, But she reaches down and grabs it, and then they just kind of, you know, he helps her cross, and they kind of keep on rolling. So, you know, that's just another weird kind of moment that made me wonder, was that really planned? Did they do that in, like, five takes every take, or did that just happen, and they went with it? Um, Kind of a moment. 
but yeah, the running across boats thing. You think it works thing, better when it keeps it light? Lights. Yeah, yeah, I think it makes it more interesting, um, and it makes it a bit more organic rather than you know just you know run across the boats and you know don't fall into the water. They do knock a couple of the stunt people into the water. One of them, I think, if I recall correctly, when they're escaping from the Aberdeen floating restaurant and they're getting on the small sampan boat. Um, one of the thugs is trying to come across onto the boat, and I think Bob Cummings takes a staff or, or one of the push paddles and knocks him in physically into the water between the floating restaurant and the boat. I'm like, okay, that guy earned his paycheck for that day because it, mm-hmm. you know, he just went down, and you know, he he didn't look like he went down in a very soft or planned manner. But you know, yeah, kudos to the stunt people on this one for being game for that. So wait, wait until uh, J- Jackie Chan becomes famous. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, and so we, we mentioned, too, that uh, some of the locations here for people who enjoy location spotting uh, are interesting. You do get the Shaw sort of backlot studio of the era that's fairly recognizable. You also have um, the Tiger Pagoda, a.k.a. Tiger Bomb Gardens, which I uh, was talking about a little bit earlier. This is uh, was a famous location that's been used in other films, and it's got a very distinct, kind of distinctive look. It was this park that was a place for tourists to go from, I think, the family who created Tiger Bomb, basically, and they have a villa there and a private garden, but then you have this public area as the public garden with some statues and some walkways and uh, the the Tiger Pagoda that you can go into. And that's all now gone. That was closed, um, I think, back in the late 90s, if memory serves. And the villa is still there. The family garden is still there, but the sort of the public garden area is closed. But they still have one in Singapore that people can, you know, go to and visit. I think they were planning, they started to build one in, in China in a province in China, and uh, that one did not get completed, if memory serves, or it closed down as well. But um, they, they still have the the similar site over in Singapore that people can visit. So when you see something, again, like this, and you will see this ki- imagery kind of used, it's like used in, I want to say, the street one of the Street Fighter games for the character of Fei Long, who was the the kind of Bruce Lee ripoff character, basically. Right on. Not really ripoff character, but, you know, Bruce Lee-inspired character. And the Hong Kong background setting used the something, you know, a similar kind of design for that, um, for that setting. So, you know, it's been kind of an inspirational setting uh, for lots of other media as well. And here it becomes the home base for the bad guys, basically, because this Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, where they kind of creep around. And speaking about ninjas before, we don't really get ninjas here, but we do get the equivalent of what they call Chinese vagabonds, right, which are guys dressed in kind of black Chung Sam style clothes with a black hood, not really a ninja mask, but a black hood, running around chasing people in a public garden in broad daylight. It's like, yeah, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna see that guy go. Hmm, that's kind of odd. He's not blending in very well with this white pagoda background as he's trying to, you know, follow somebody and hide in his black suit, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of daytime activity here, including the the nightclub. Is apparently uh, they they do 
most of their business during the day. Yes. Because uh, yeah. they, the, you know, I was looking at that. Maybe it's no, it is, is actually daytime because the police arrive at one point when uh, a character leaves the nightclub. It's still daytime, so maybe it's um, it's yeah. their business model. They're, they they it they their booming show or something. Exactly, <laughs> and uh, and and I have to say two brief things. The pagoda chase is so effing weak because they're as they they're chasing Bob Cummings around there. He's jogging. And therefore, all those uh, those men in pajamas uh, have to sort of jog along with him. And as he dispenses of them, uh, you know, he bops them on the head, and we hear a cartoon effect go off on the soundtrack. And uh, th- that wasn't the movie's bread and butter throughout. So it's an isolated sequence where they try and make it cartoony as uh, he throws people off uh, off the pagoda. Which uh, didn't work. It was uh, laughable, actually. And the nightclub sequence runs way too long. The, it obviously does set up the Magda character firmly. You got two singing numbers that she's uh, quite, uh, you know, she can manipulate situations using her sexuality, and she does. But there, there, there's an aura here, Paul, and I don't know about these things, that screams to me obligation. Get two singing numbers in. We have a guest star lined up. She mm. has to appear as well. And that comes at the expense of uh, flow and pace, in mm. my opinion. R- nothing wrong with the songs and the singing. And uh, the ladies are gorgeous. But it stalls the movie in a big, bad way for my for my money's worth. Yeah, there's, I mean, and, and by the time you get to the nightclub proper, when you're introduced to the Margaret Lee character and then, the manager of the nightclub, um, his name Peterson, played by actor Sighart Rupp. They, it, it's an introduction so late in the day that it's kind of like, okay, now I've got more characters to kind of keep track of. And I don't even think you've been introduced to um, the, the Golden Dragons. And, and you know, here's, here's the thing with the Golden Dragons. I mean, they, they kind of build them up as this crime syndicate in, in the trailer but you only get like two or three lines of dialogue from each of these guys. I mean, r- really, it was I'm sure it was like one day of of shooting for them um, to do the interior. And then each of them have like an exterior scene where they're arriving in some mode of transportation to Hong Kong. One of them's coming on a so they helicopter. Flew out Christopher Lee for essentially a yeah. two scene cameo. He, he's got he's got the Peter Graves kind of boat scene where he's he's coming to <laughs> Hong Kong on a boat and he's standing there on the dock and it's an actually it's it's a pretty good scene because they start way back and then they really zoom in to the boat and then you see him um, but it's, it's that and then it's them him sitting in the golden dragon's chamber and he and he says a line and or two and that's it I mean that's really um, all there it's is nice for the... to be an actor <laughs> And um, I don't mind it. Christopher Lee can read a phone book and it will be enthralling. But uh, God knows uh, it's a ripoff if you sell it on his name. Uh, yeah. And I saw a DVD cover that says starring Christopher Lee. Nope. Yeah, not, not or any of the guys, you know, um, any, any <laughs> of the dragons. If you're going in thinking, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be like these big bads and, you know, the, the plot's going to, they're going to be manipulating people. Da, 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 da. No, not, sorry, it, it doesn't do that. It's It's really a big marketing marketing ploy and the biggest marketing ploy and I would say the biggest disappointment is how they build up the hidden fifth golden 
dragon, which I won't yeah. say any more about that. But yeah, again, it, if you watch uh, the trailer, it, yeah, it's just not it's not that exciting by the end. It led to me, uh, but because yeah, okay, you understand eighty percent of it, I suppose it's not that complicated. But when it did get complicated, I was uh, yeah, I was all Homer Simpson by that point. You know, oh, this movie's too complicated. And who's that guy? <laughs> what did that guy say when I said who's that guy? I, I was literally that that person as I was uh, watching him, in particular the M. So, uh, yeah. uh, but so he didn't, you know. I mean, it's I, almost I like I don't expect these movies to be like a slam dunk, usual suspect sort of twisty. When when by the end, I realized this is light entertainment, but it's so quickly so. This is how we did it, and oh, really? What the, did that mean then? And I don't know. And it's over yeah. now, and therefore it leaves you quickly, um, your consciousness, so to say. Yeah, it's it, there's a thing that happens. It's not. It's not the equivalent of like an M. Night Shyamalan twist, but there's a twist that happens in kind of the final post-climax of, of the film. And uh, even now, after watching this a few times, I still don't really understand why that happened. I mean, they talk it out and they kind of explain and theorize about, well, this must have done it because of this. Da, da. And I'm just like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but okay, it wraps up the film and that's what they needed to do by this point here so i guess we'll just go with it <laughs> yeah it's um it's it's strange and then the police arrive and uh, i i i don't want to gloss this over by the way because roy chow is uh, he's great and he's given um a little bit more to do uh, his interaction with um, uh, rupert davis is it yeah they they don't treat this as stale cop talk and he just comes in and says yes sir but they I, I think it's my second favorite sort of aspect of the movie that it realizes is light entertainment. So why not have Superior and Underling have a little comedic back and forth in terms of quoting Shakespeare to one another? Yeah. And I thought that was rather delightful, actually, because it means nothing for the movie. It does nothing for the movie, but it sort of performed with the right amount of distance from from the author making, making light entertainment. And uh, it's not about... Okay, it's not as modern as this, but it's not about drinking coffee and eating donuts or anything. They just they sort of rib each other a little bit. No, it's from Othello, scene four, act one, whatever. Uh, no, it's not. And they have a, a decent back and forth, uh, Roy Chow and Rupert Davis. But I'm still not convinced of one thing, Paul. Roy Chow's dialogue. I, I can give a long explanation, but I, I should say this. I think he's dubbed. But... They do have audio that sounds like it's recorded on set by someone. It, but because Roy, I, I, I don't think I've heard Roy speak in his own English accent, but I don't think it was an American accent that Roy Chow developed over the years of working abroad. Because this character speaks with a slightly more American accent, and it didn't sound to me like it was Roy. But it was well dubbed, and the audio sounds like it's done live on the set rather than in the studio. So it's a mixture of things where I wasn't sure, but I think he's dubbed. So I was wondering if you had any theory on, I, I on think that. It's, I think in some of it it's post-dubbed, but I think it's him doing the post-dub. Or at the it's very really, least, it they they yeah, because I don't think they could have gotten a Hong Kong post-dubber to do... A voice that sounds like him speaking English. They, I mean, mm. I think they would have a, have no trouble because they have lots of people who can, you know, sound like Andy Lau or Stephen Chow or 
things like that in Cantonese. But I think English, that's, I think it's him. I really do because the times maybe, I've heard him speak did, English, uh, um, yeah. it, it, it just sounds like him to me. But I, I no way to verify it. I could be wrong. So Maybe I just expected to have a, him to have a super clean, impeccable accent with a slight Chinese to it. Maybe I just expect that and in fact maybe when he switched to English in real life outside movies it is snapped into what we hear in the movie. So it, it's, a, it's a mixture of I'm delighted and I want to know and I don't know mm. and that's the clever filmmaking I suppose coming into play or something. Uh, but uh, because uh, you, you, you can differentiate between canned, canned studio stuff and something that sounds... Um, like it was recorded in room ambience, and that's what's on this soundtrack as him and Rupert Davis uh, go back and forth. Yeah, and for me, I mean, I could have watched just an entire film of the two of them, you know, walking Hell around yes. and, and talking and 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 ribbing each other and discussing news. <laughs> Give me more of that movie, and we can, you know, we can stop some of the some of the hijinks a little bit. Um, there is one character that I do do want to mention, and I did not find his name. Um, and I should probably have gone back and looked on the disc proper to see if it was there. And that's a character called Asing, who ends up as a helper to Bob Mitchell somehow. Um, and he's like this old uncle, right? <laughs> but he's like, you know, he, he, you don't want to mess with him because uh, he gets the job done by the end. Um, he looks like one of those um, um players that you saw in. Shaw Brothers movies or and or other studios because I recognize that guy but never bothered to look mm. because you you know all these faces that always appeared in in movies throughout yeah. 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and sometimes not aging at all you know looking old by default um, right. so I, I think I know uh, the one who dispenses of um, uh, a character yes. towards the end yeah. right 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 and in a weird a weird scene too um, watching that scene for a second time and and Seeing that actor emote and some of the physicality <laughs> in that scene is just kind of like wow. How did how did he do? How does he have that kind of control to make that happen on his face? It's nice. Um, it's um it's it's a fun scene. Um, I guess one thing you can yeah. maybe go back and look at is because um, um, I can't confirm this because I, I I was looking forward to seeing if they utilized any Shaw Brothers players right because they are on the set they clearly blow up a car on mm. the Shaw Street set that was um, you, you, you're so in tune with that but at one point there's a there's a character that works for the police that is asked to tail the character of Ingrid yes young young cop I think but this is Fink, only that's the actor Chen Hung Lee, who is the eunuch in Come Drink With Me and uh, tons of other villainous roles throughout Kung Fu movies and what have you. Uh, he, he has a distinct smile. And uh, here, the guy looks young, but uh, obviously playing a cop, he's not supposed to emote that sort of smarmy, uh, you know, emoting that that's required of a villainous role. But to my eyes, that looked a little bit like Chen Hung Lee tailing Ingrid, you know, in a dashing suit and glasses, um, looking very young. And he, he was young. I mean, Come Drink With Me was 1966. So mm. so clearly he was around Shaw, so he was a player. So uh, that was the only thing I, a big player that sort of stood out to me, if it was him. Um, uh, there, there's no credits on Wikipedia anyway that extends yeah. to uh, 
small players or anything. But uh, that was the only one I thought I recognized. Well, I guess in terms of like wrapping up uh, some of the side aspects of this film, uh, I talked a little bit about Bob Cummings earlier. He met actually met his fourth wife uh, named Regina Fong while on this film. She was the apparently the script girl or script supervisor. I'm not sure if they'd be called a script girl today uh, on the film, and he ended up uh, marrying her sometime later. He had a very rough life, uh, and uh, with regard to substance abuse, um, he was hooked on meth. And this is a pretty oh. famous case because him and some other actors were apparently under the supervision of a Hollywood doctor uh, who became known as Dr. Feelgood. And this doctor wow. got several celebrities kind of strung out by these concoctions that he would give them. Um, and I get that guess, I guess basically made him kind of like a dealer, you know, they'd end up coming back for these things. And so over the course of his life, he had struggles with substance abuse all the way up until uh, he died later in life. And it caused problems with his marriage. I believe he ended up divorcing uh, his fourth wife later as a result of uh, his use of meth and you know it's just it's it's sad when you see somebody with such a vibrant presence on screen like this who seems like they are very high energy and fun and you know life loving but it, then you've got this kind of story behind the scenes that paints a different picture so late in life too because you you'd think you know when once you reach your i think it was nearly 60 mm. by this point so you you'd think that Maybe you wouldn't fall into that thing after a year of experiences, but uh, who knows? Um, uh, and and it's sad, regardless. Uh, obviously, not not judging, but uh, it, indeed, it looked like he um, could li- sort of light up the screen with a certain persona. It didn't seem like it was, uh, you know, uh, dull or anything. His uh, his uh, mission was sort of to be um, to be to be upbeat and to be uh, likable and stuff, uh, based on this movie alone. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's. I've also found it interesting because we talked about our last film, uh, Up to His Ears, where actor John Paul Balmondo ended up in a relationship with um, the actress on his film, Ursula Andress, for a number of years after, you know, they they filmed that together. So, I don't know, something about going to Hong Kong and making a film, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have a hookup, maybe. I, I'm just kidding. Um, but it was it was interesting to kind of read that as a bit of side note uh, to the trivia. As I said, uh, the music in this I really liked. I tried to dig up a soundtrack. I could not find anything out there on you know current digital forms. It looked like at one time Amazon UK had um, both of the songs from Margaret Lee available for streaming, um, but I did not find a soundtrack proper. But I, you know you can find the songs um, both from her. And from um, uh, Yukari Ito. You, you, yes. Yeah. Uh, see, I, I listen to a contemporary musician called Kamiko Ito, and I keep ah. wanting to say her name. Uh, Yukari Ito. Uh, you can find both of those pretty readily available on things like you know YouTube, where they've taken the song and and they've kind of patched it together. Um, so yeah, you can you know listen to those, and and I think it's it's pretty above average for the. You know, the movie soundtracks in terms of actual vocals that we've uh, had up to this point. And yeah, I shot on location in Hong Kong in Shaw Studios, so you can't really get more Hong Kong than that when it comes to uh, production, right? It's always um, 
that connection to Western uh, and East, in this case, Western Shore Studios, is um, always sort of delightful. Uh, you, um, you you have the big guns that obviously did uh, co-productions with uh, shores like Hammer, but uh, productions came and went uh, here and there, whether Italian productions or not, and that was fun because then you got that got to merge that with their short players these italian supermen movies that they're not superhero movies but uh, these were dubbed the supermen those movies uh, at least one was made in hong kong it features law leet so it's it's a point of interest for me to you know when i uncover these uh, w- when they are co-productions but whenever short studios are involved it's always nice to see you know going all the way forward to how run run Shaw was involved in uh, financing of blade runner i mean it's mm. on the print yep. uh, you know initially in association with so run run Shaw. so it, it's always uh, a little i don't know if i if pride is the right word but i think it's cool that um Shaw brothers have such an influence on a variety of productions uh, throughout the years, not uh, just their own. So, um, and th- this one includes uh, that very thing. Yes, indeed. I guess my final points on this are if you are somebody who is interested in Hong Kong as a location and some location spotting, and you're not averse to some kind of, you know, silly plotting that doesn't really make a lot of sense by the end, but you know, you're okay for going along with the ride. You can check this out. Uh, it's readily available, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but let me throw the final points back over to Ken. I think uh, that's pretty much a well summary of it all. I have nothing really to add. Uh, even even the complexity towards the end didn't change my grade that much. It wasn't heading in, headed into a four out of five territory, and then the Scooby-Doo reveal happened. Uh, but um, for, for all the good build up it does in the first half it doesn't really go anywhere beyond that but it's likable enough and obviously being you know the 60s we've got a colorful tone to it all here uh, by design because fashion and design dictates that it should be colorful i don't know hong kong might have been grimy in reality but it certainly doesn't come off that way and uh, it's well worth a look and uh, you don't need to pay an arm and a leg to um to experiences uh, to experience this physically or in the digital realm of things so all right let's talk a little bit about availability this is pretty much everywhere right now surprisingly the itunes us lists it for a price of uh, 9.99 for the hd version same price over on amazon but if you are an amazon prime member in the us you can actually stream this for free as part of your prime membership uh, you can also get this, as I mentioned earlier, as the double disc set um, on, from Blue Underground as a dual Blu-ray for twelve ninety nine, and that includes this film and Circus of Fear. If you are kind of, you know, trying to get more bang for your buck, I think that's probably a better option in terms of, you know, nine ninety nine for one film or twelve ninety nine for two. But if you're not interested in that and you don't want the physical media side of it, you still have those two options for streaming. And I got the... I've watched both versions of this. Um, The initial watch through, I think I rented it on Amazon because at the time it was not on Prime. And it looked very good there. And the Blu-ray looks surprisingly good um, in terms of the quality of the image and the copy. And they've stuffed both films onto a single disc. So that was... 
uh, pretty surprising for me that there wasn't a, a huge degradation because of, of all that media on there. So, you know, if this is something that is in your wheelhouse, you can consider a purchase because it's not too pricey. Uh, but if you just want to give it a try, as I said, you can stream it on Prime if you're a Prime member, or you, I think the rental prices are in the 4 or $5 range. So you can try out a rental to see if it's your speed. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to Hollywood on Hong Kong, a sub-series of the East Green, West Green podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And we also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. Find us over at Twitter at Comcast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at East S-West-S. As always, please do follow along with all the things that my fellow co-host here does in his podcast on fire network empire and beyond. Oh, stop it. Stop it. It's not an empire. <laughs> I'm, uh, just, I'm just some guy. Well, where, <laughs> can they, where can they find out more about some guy? That's um, I'm mainly doing the, the work uh, in oral form, so to say, A-U-R, nothing else, uh, over at podcastonfire.com. And uh, I'm, I'm on most of the shows and uh, happy to uh, to produce them and expand my knowledge. And I hope that travels to your audiences if you try out any of the Podcast on Fire Network shows, including uh, the Hanky Show, Podcast on Fire. But there's even adults-only shows on there and bonus episodes and um or the commentaries and what have you. So I uh, hope you uh, give us a chance. And uh, if you uh, do like what you hear, then uh, throw, us, uh, throw us, a little, us a little comment on social media and what have you. And all those links are available on site. There's handy buttons at the top of our website. So so check it out. And thank you if you, if you do so. All right. Excellent. Please do check out our friends over there at the Podcast on Fire Network. And check out our own show, East Screen, West Screen Proper, when you get a chance. Um, as I said, our next show, we're going to be moving out of the Hong Kong hijinks segment and into what we call uh, Love Hong Kong style, where we focus on some romantic dramas going forward. Uh, the one film that I did mention earlier in the show that I had in- thought to include in this Hong Kong hijinks segment is Johar Mahmood's Hong Kong or Johar Mahmood in Hong Kong, depending on how you, you view the copy. Um, the, this is a Bollywood film. Uh, out of India that was done, uh, forget the I forget the year that it was done. I think it's 1971, or maybe it's 70. I think it's 71. And it's a full-on kind of Bollywood comedy film that moves from India to Hong Kong and a lot of the hijinks happening there. It's a standard Bollywood film. It's got musical numbers. It's pretty long in terms of the running time. The I do have a copy. There is a there are copies of the DVD out there that are subtitled, that you can find occasionally on places like eBay. I think I got mine on Amazon, but as I said, my copy is somewhere buried in storage, and I haven't been able to find it yet in time for the next show. So you know I'll keep looking, but um, in, in the likely event is that we'll save that for perhaps a second season and uh, 
come, you know, sort of come back and, and revisit that one. So the plan now, uh, unless it changes, is to focus on the 1955 romantic drama, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, the sort of classic film, uh, novel turned film uh, that, you know, has been iconic as a, you know, not necessarily for its use of Hong Kong, but as a sort of Pacific Asia romantic drama story. So we'll be looking at that for our next show. So until then, this has been the East Green, West Green podcast, Hollywood on Hong Kong series, saying Kenneth is the sixth golden dragon. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> see you next time. Go out and discover cinema, people, right now, says the sixth golden dragon. Sweet.